Tom Woods Show, episode 1586. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, as you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been spreading some pretty terrible ideas, and she's wrong on just about everything. Well, I've put together the definitive smash of all of it. The Green New Deal, affordable housing, so-called free college, high tax rates. It's in another free ebook, yes, a free ebook called AOC is Wrong, The Upside-Down World of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Grab your free copy at aocswrong.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. I want to talk about income inequality today, and I know we've covered that a handful of times on this podcast, but I have in front of me an article from Reason.com by our old friend and sometime guest David R. Henderson, who is currently a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And this piece, I think, just sums up everything that's important. It's mostly an empirical piece. It's not I mean, it does to an extent make of a um, moral argument, but it's primarily based on just getting the numbers right and making sure we understand the economics. To me, it's the best little introduction to this because it does really hit on all the relevant questions. So I want to run through these with you today. And obviously, I'll link you to the article at tomwoods.com slash 1586. So hope you enjoy this. I think it you know, even though, as I said, we've covered it from one angle or another in the past, it's an issue that's just not going away. And I think David has given us a really meaty, sophisticated, thorough overview of the subject. Now, the thing is, with me, it just makes me crazy that anybody cares about this at all. I just, it makes me crazy that anybody cares about this, that some people earn more than they do. Now, if they earn more than you do because they're getting the money disreputably, then yeah, I understand that you're injustice meter may go off and that makes perfect sense and I couldn't be more sympathetic. But that's not really, when I hear libertarians telling me, well, you know, Bernie is on to something because there are a lot of people who got their wealth, you know, through, you know, using the state. Bernie doesn't have any problem with people getting wealth through using the state. That's what the state is for, according to him. That's not his fundamental problem. Uh, He's not making, Bernie and his supporters are not making these fine distinctions that libertarians who want to pretend to be kind of on Bernie's side are themselves making. We do make fine distinctions. They do not. For them, wealth per se is the problem. It is not how you acquired it. It's wealth per se. And we don't have any problem with wealth per se. The reason that your life isn't where it needs to be, has nothing to do with the fact that somebody else has a private jet, has nothing whatsoever to do with that. And if you're focused on that, I don't see how you're ever going to succeed. You have exactly the wrong attitude. It has never, even from my days as a poor graduate student, occurred to me to think to myself, it's terrible that that person is so rich. The thought never crossed my mind. But anyway, if I continue along these lines, we'll never get to the article. So let's do that. Let me just read you the summary of David's argument here. He says, on a global scale, inequality is declining. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I mean, not even remotely debatable. He says, while it has increased within the United States, it has not grown nearly as much as people often claim. The American poor and middle class have been gaining ground, and the much-touted disappearance of the middle class has happened mainly because the ranks of the people above the middle class have swollen. 
And while substantially raising tax rates on higher-income people is often touted as a fix for inequality, it would probably hurt lower-income people as well as the wealthy. The same goes for a tax on wealth. Most important, not all income inequality is bad. Inequality emerges in more than one way, some of it justifiable, some of it not. Most of what is framed as a problem of inequality is better conceived as either a problem of poverty or a problem of unjustly acquired wealth. Exactly. So if poor people are suffering some deprivation, that it has nothing to do with income inequality. It has to do with poverty because they would be suffering those deprivations regardless of how everybody else was doing. If this is the income level they're at, they're going to have these deprivations regardless of whether my income is 10 times as great or three times as great or 110% as great, whatever. So first of all, he wants to start off by looking at how much inequality there really is. So there was a report produced by the Congressional Budget Office just over a year ago, November 2018, looking at five quintiles. So a quintile would be 20% of income earners. So there are five of them to make 100%. So these are looking at the growth of household income in these quintiles, these numbers. And what the CBO reported is that between the years 1979 and 2015, average real income for people in the top quintile rose by 101%, while people in the bottom quintile saw their incomes rise by 32%. Okay, but that's a rise of 32%, not bad. Entire centuries went by in European history without anything like that kind of result. And we're actually being taught to complain about that. Okay, I wonder what they thought a thousand years ago. And, and incidentally, they didn't, didn't even occur to them to complain because it never occurred to anybody that sustained economic growth and economic progress were possible. So why complain about something you can't change? Uh, also, for the middle three quintiles, average real income increased by 32% as well. Now, Henderson says that we should also factor in the effects of taxes and the welfare state, uh, direct government transfers, mainly because if the idea behind highlighting inequality is then to propose government programs to alleviate the inequality, we have to know exactly how much of it there really is in the present, in the wake of existing government programs, you know, what the government is doing already. So once you subtract taxes and add Social Security and various other forms of welfare, what you find is that the lowest quintile saw its income rise by 79%. The middle three quintiles, 46%. And for the highest quintile, 103%. So probably because of uh, tax changes. But the point is, this has not been a case of the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The poor have gotten richer. And we also need to bear in mind, and, and he'll get to this a little bit later, and I've talked about this, that you can't just look at the bottom 20% in 1979 and the bottom 20% in 2015 as if these are the same people. They're not. A huge chunk of them leave the bottom 20%. So it's much more interesting to trace them out over time and see how their incomes have changed. That's a much, much more difficult, labor-intensive research project than it is simply to look at a number in 1979 and a number in 2015. But on the rare occasions when this has been done, that they have traced out the life, the lives of the people in the bottom quintile, they find that in general, yeah, they do leave the bottom quintile. So 
it's not even that interesting to look at, well, how well are the bottom quintile doing if they're not in the bottom quintile anymore? Okay, so the group of people who qualify to be in the bottom quintile saw their incomes rise by 32%. But since a lot of them didn't stay in the bottom quintile, their incomes didn't rise by 32%. They rose by some larger amount. But we don't know who these people are because we're just looking at these giant aggregates. These numbers, though, about incomes over that expanse of time understate how well we're doing. And it's Don Boudreau who's done some important work in helping us understand this point. He's been a guest on the podcast here. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University. And he pulled out the old Sears catalog. Now, if you're an older person, you'll remember the Sears catalogs, this giant catalog, physical catalog that you got in the mail. And what he's done is gone back to a Sears catalog from 1975 And he's compared the prices of items you could have got from that catalog with prices for similar items in 2006. So with the average wage in 2006, the point is you would have had to spend far less time working in order to earn the money necessary to buy the items in question than you would have had to do in 1975. And not to mention, those items in 2006 are of much higher quality. I mean, imagine comparing a a television in 2006 to a pathetic version in 1975. And in fact, David says that his local goodwill in the year 2010 wouldn't even accept a functional TV from 1999. They wouldn't even accept it as a donation, much less a pathetic TV from 1975. Not to mention there are a lot of things we have today, you know, like smartphones that didn't even exist in 1975. Well, okay, 2006, you may say, I wish we had more recent numbers. So David asked Don to update the data to 2019, and he found that since 2013, the time cost of the chosen goods fell by another 30%. Now, one problem that people face, however, is that even though consumer goods have been getting cheaper in terms of the amount of time you have to work to earn the money to buy them, at the same time, there are three major categories of expenditure that have seen their prices rise. And by an interesting coincidence, these three happen to be dominated by government. And I think you already know what three they are, education, housing, and health. So state and local governments have almost a monopoly on education. So that may have a little something to do with the problem. David says, in housing, governments on the West Coast and in the Northeast have so restricted new construction that supply has not kept up with demand. So therefore, prices go up. And then, of course, healthcare, you have the government's hands all over it. Now, let's look on a global scale. Inequality is clearly declining on a global scale, and it has a lot farther still to go. So if we look at inequality using a figure known as the Gini coefficient, we can see this. This is something you learn, actually, in an introductory economics course. The idea of the Gini coefficient is if the coefficient is zero, then everybody has absolutely, is absolutely equal. If the coefficient is 100, that means one person is earning all the income and everybody else is earning nothing at all. So a 2015 study by the Peterson Institute for International Economics finds that the global Gini coefficient between 2003 and 2013 fell from 69 to 65, mainly driven by economic growth in lower income countries. So the extreme poverty there has been alleviated 
and that has caused this adjustment in the Gini coefficient. And they predict, the, the researchers who wrote this paper predict that by 2035, it will have declined from 65 down to 61. All right, now I mentioned the problem of the people in the different quintiles not being the same people over time. And so that, again, sort of obscures what's really going on. And this point, getting this point right, helps us get to the bottom of the shrinking middle class claim a little bit. Because it turns out that in a a recent report, and recent meaning 2015, found that 57.1% of households remained in the same income quintile between 2009 and 2012 but 42.9% experienced either an upward or a downward movement across the income distribution. Okay, so they weren't the same people. All right, but for the most part, the middle class is getting smaller because people are moving up. Well, first, he says, how do we define the middle class? What constitutes the middle class? So some people say it's the three middle income quintiles, not the top quintile, not the bottom quintile, but the three middle ones, hence middle class. So if that's the case, then in 2018, the middle class was anybody whose households with income between $25,600 and $130,000. Now, bearing in mind that inflation has been adjusted for, all these figures are being given in $2018. In 1967, the middle three quintiles had income ranging from $19,726 to $54,596. So the people in the middle, therefore, are considerably richer than their counterparts half a century ago were. Now, you could say that this defines the middle class a bit too broadly, because if you're going to say it's the middle three quintiles, that means exactly 60% of households will always technically be in the middle class. So then on the other hand, we have Mark Perry, who's an economist with the American Enterprise Institute. I've also had him on the podcast says that we should think of the middle class more narrowly to include any household with an income in 2018 dollars between $35,000 and $100,000. So in 1967, 54% of households were in that category. By 2018, that was down to 42%. Now, is that because the middle class is disappearing? Well, perhaps, but not because they slipped, but because they rose. So in 1967, only 9.4% of U.S. households had income of $100,000 or more. Again, we're talking in constant $2,018. But by 2018, that percentage had gone from 9.7 to 30.4. So you see what I mean? This is good stuff David has here. And I've got some particularly juicy stuff coming up for you in just a second. But before we get to that, quick reminder about my good friends who have been extremely kind to the old man here. These are my friends at C-SPAN. Thanks to C-SPAN, this election season, you can go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. C-SPAN, as I say, has been so good to me over the years, letting me get my message out unfiltered without editorial comment. You can't ask for more than that. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to Election Day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen 
on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at cspan.org. All brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. All right, back to David R. Henderson. He points out, and I think this is very helpful, he says, it's important to distinguish the concepts of inequality and poverty. A lot of what people are complaining about has nothing to do with inequality, per se. It's a, an artifact and a problem of poverty. So, for example, Mark Toma, a University of Oregon economist who has a very popular blog, is very well-known, fell into this mistake when he said that income inequality was associated with inequality in health. You think, how could that be? How could income inequality have anything to do with health? Well, here's, here's how. He says, lower income is associated with high levels of stress, exhaustion, cardiovascular disease, lower life expectancy, and obesity. Okay, well, nobody would deny that there's a possibility that lower income could be associated with those things. What does that have to do with income inequality? So you're saying that if I took $2 billion from uh, Mike Bloomberg and just burned it up, literally burned it up, the poor people's health would improve? This doesn't even make sense. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? So it goes to show they're so fixated on this and obsessed with this, they're not even thinking clearly. You know, it's not the inequality that's the problem there. It's the poverty. I mean, honestly, if instantly we took all the greater than average income from all the rich people and literally burned it, would we just throw all the hospital doors open and the, the, the lame would be cured and the, the lepers would, I don't know why I'm using these old examples, but you, you see what I mean? It, this doesn't even make sense, right? So you, you got to keep an eye on these people. Can't trust them. So how about the 1%, the old 1%, what about them? Aren't they terrible people? Right? The share of income accruing to the top 1% has been the subject of a lot of discussion. So what I will say here is that in trying to sort out what the truth of the matter is, I, I think it would be too technical for me to get into this point, but the, all the data can be found in the article uh, linked on the show notes page, uh, tomwoods.com slash 1586. So what we will say about this for now is that what the data unambiguously shows, regardless of which side of this debate you take and how we ought to calculate the numbers and all that, one thing that is indisputable is that the more you earn, the higher the percent of your income that you pay to Washington. So in 2015, the people in the lowest quintile paid 1.5% of their income in federal taxes on average. Second quintile, 9.2%. Middle quintile, 14% then 17.9%, and the highest quintile, 26.7%. In the top 1%, you were paying 33.3% of your income. And that included all federal taxes, income taxes, Social Security and Medicare, corporate income taxes, excise taxes. So whenever there's a large federal tax cut, obviously people in the top quintile are going to get a much bigger benefit because especially when this is uh, most or all of the cut is in the individual income tax, because that's a tax that, as you can see from the numbers, is disproportionately paid by higher income people. But do they get a bigger cut as a percentage of their federal tax burden? Well, the answer has been no when we look at the 
the Bush tax cuts of 2001, 2, and 3, and even, yes, the Trump tax cuts of 2017. So, again, reported by uh, Henderson here, the 2017 Trump cuts reduced taxes most percentage-wise for the second to lowest quintile. Their taxes were cut by 10.3%. Middle quintile saw a cut of 8.7%. The second highest, 7.5%. The top quintile saw a 6.7% cut. And the top 1%, a 4.6% cut. The lowest quintile had its taxes cut by 7.3%, but that's actually amazing because most of these people don't even pay uh, federal income taxes. And then David gets into a discussion of what the consequences of taxing higher income people would be in order to reduce inequality. Well, obviously you'd have less capital investment and more capital per worker is how worker productivity increases, which is how wages increase. So obviously you're just going to either make wages stagnate or deteriorate in your attempt to mitigate income inequalities. That's probably not what you want to do. What I like, though, is, as he comes toward the end, is an example of two ways of acquiring wealth and two ways of bringing about inequality. So he says, let's take, for example, Robert McCulloch, who introduced the 325, a one-man chainsaw that weighed only 25 pounds. He says, this revolutionized forestry. It changed people's lives. Everybody wanted one of these. So McCulloch got richer. Now, eventually other people produced their own chainsaws, and so he had competitors. But he still did very well. And people were thrilled to have this new product. There's no way that's a bad thing. And if you're fixated on this guy having extra money, this, there's really something wrong with you. Now, on the other hand, he gives the example of somebody who used political power to make himself and his wife very wealthy. And who is that somebody? Congressman Lyndon Johnson from Texas. In 1942, his net worth was basically zero. But by 1963, when he became president of the United States, he and his wife had a net worth of about $20 million. And a good chunk of that had to do with special privileges granted by the Federal Communications Commission so they could operate a radio station, KTBC, in Austin, Texas. This whole story is just horrible. The owners of that station had been trying for years to get the FCC to give it permission to sell the station. Yes, they needed that permission. January 1943, Lyndon Johnson's wife, known as Lady Bird, files her application to buy it. And what do you know? 24 days later, they're suddenly allowed to sell it to her. Then she applied for permission to be able to operate the station for more hours a day and on a much better part of the AM band. She got that permission a month later. Meanwhile, the FCC was under attack by Congressman Eugene Cox, who wanted to cut the budget down to zero. And Lyndon Johnson strategized with an FCC official named Red James and used his influence with the House Speaker at that time to hold off this attack. And James later admitted that he had recommended that Johnson's wife apply for that FCC license. And then over the subsequent decades, it isn't just that the FCC made things easy for her when she needed approval for various things at her radio station and later also a television station. It's also that when there was a competitor that wanted to, you know, let's say try his hand against this established station, the FCC put regulatory barriers in the way. And so Lyndon Johnson's wife had a company that dominated broadcasting in Austin. 
yeah, that brings about income inequality too. But that is genuinely objectionable for reasons I should not have to explain, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm sure a libertarian audience or even just an audience of human beings can pick that up. So that's the proper moral distinction to make. And then finally, what about people, you know, a lot of times people are concerned that people are rich because of inheritance. And that's just not fair and, and no wonder. And that just goes to show that people get rich not on their own because that's impossible. We all know, all we sophisticated, all sophisticated people, we all know that people can't get rich on their own. They get rich because they have their father's money or something like that. But this has actually been studied. Uh, the American Economic Review uh, had a paper from economists from the University of Chicago and Stanford. They found that about a third, just one third of people on the Forbes 400 list in 2011 had come from very rich families. And that was down from 60% in 1982. So there was more mo upward mobility because now only 32% of people had um, come from very rich families. And then 69% of the 400 had started their own business. So in other words, most of these people who made fortunes, made fortunes. That's the way David puts it. Most of these people who made fortunes made the fortunes. They actually made the fortunes. So I hope you'll agree with me that this subject is not being covered accurately and people are drawing the wrong conclusions and a lot of bad policy is likely to result. So this article is definitely worth your time, tomwoods.com slash 1586. Let me tell you something, by the way, this is um, actually not somebody who got hosting through me, but I had a private consult the other day with somebody because um, on my entrepreneurship list, I was selling a product and I said, if you buy this product, I'll hop on and do a 20-minute consult with you and we'll work out a strategy session for your, you know, your online business stuff. So I had a guy whose wife runs a wonderful Korean cooking website called mykoreankitchen.com. It's beautiful. I absolutely love this site. And it turns out that it does really, really well. Um, I'm not going to disclose income figures, but let's just say this is just a woman with some tech assistance from her husband running this blog on a subject she loves, and it does fantastically well. And you may look at it and not even understand where the money's coming from. How, how is she earning from this? But it goes to show this can be done. It was such a great conversation. Now, I was able to give them some suggestions that I'm hopeful will make the site even more profitable for them. But this is amazing. Look at it, look at it, mykoreankitchen.com. It's a wonderful site, beautifully laid out. And yes, it generates... Again, I wish I could tell you, but let's just say they're doing quite well with a blog on Korean cooking. So this is not a site on, on Forex trading or real estate investing, you know, with $2,000 information courses. This is a blog on Korean cooking. It's just amazing. So anyway, I have an email list and an ebook that uh, gives you some ideas along these lines. And the ebook is called Five Paths to an Online Income. I wrote it four years ago. I wouldn't change one word in it today. Uh, it's, it's very, very helpful. And it doesn't cost you anything because it's a free ebook. You know, you know how my ebooks work. You can pick that up over at pathstoincome.com and uh, see what you think. So go do that because all the cool people are cleaning up and having a great time and you don't want to be left out. So a nice little introduction of this little world is over at pathstoincome.com. 
So, uh, you know, we, we talk and theorize about and celebrate capitalism a lot, but we don't do enough of it as libertarians. So here's your entry point into that, pathstoincome.com. Go enjoy that, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.